Hi, I'm Katrina Ingram. Welcome to Back to School Again, the show for midlife learners recorded at the Norquest College Innovation Studio. We talk with midlife learners about their educational journey, sharing their stories about how they are balancing the demands of school, work, and family, and where they hope their educational pursuits will take them. Undertaking an advanced degree is a big commitment. What compels a person to sign up for the long road to attaining a PhD when they have effectively retired from the workforce? We're about to find out. My guest today is Jane Hurley. She's currently a PhD student at the University of Alberta in the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation. Jane's research is centered around the role of leisure in the well-being of refugees in Canada. She's especially interested in nature-based leisure and how being in nature can have a positive, calming impact to ease the stress of resettlement in a new country. Jane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Jane, let's start out with your own immigration story, which I know starts in the UK. Can you tell us a bit about making your way to Canada via South Africa? Well, I was born in the UK, and post-war, my parents wanted to live somewhere more salubrious, And so they decided to emigrate to South Africa, which was an awfully difficult decision to leave all their family. And we arrived, I think because that was the era of no social media, no internet, we arrived in um, full-blown apartheid South Africa, which is where I grew up and uh, went to university. Um, And amazingly enough, came out as a very liberal thinker. And I met my husband in Johannesburg, and we got married. And the one thing that he said to me was that even though he had been born in South Africa, he never actually felt like he was a South African. He never felt at home there because of the dreadful social policies that ripped people apart. And so um, when we found out that we were going to have a baby, we decided that was it. We certainly didn't want a child brought up in a racist environment. And so we applied to come to Canada. And so we arrived here in 1982. An amazing story. Um, and being an immigrant yourself, was that what prompted your decision to work with the refugee community in doing your research? Um, no. Actually, when I was doing my master's degree, which I did through Royal Roads University in Victoria, there was a course that I took on global politics. And I became extremely attuned and aware of the massive migrations that were beginning. Um, They were at that point, that was 2012, just starting off. And I was thinking about, you know, what people, what it is like for people who've had to run, just live in conflict zones and run, leave everything behind. And how do you settle in another country if you do get accepted for resettlement that is culturally different from yours? What makes the process you know, acceptable, easy to uh, undergo, and so on. You make a really good point about the difference between choosing to immigrate to a place and and arriving here as a refugee. And I definitely want to talk with you more about your program and about your research and, and dive into that. But before we do that, I just want to go back a little bit and explore your career before, before you retired uh, to do your PhD. 
Um, you held many different roles in communications. You worked in film and television, and all of that sounds really exciting and glamorous. I'm just wondering if you can share how you got into that line of work and what it was like working in those fields. Well, um, I'll start in the reverse order. Um, I'll start with television first, and then that morphed into working on um, feature films. And then I became a communications strategist. So I started working in television because I didn't want to be a teacher anymore. And this was in South Africa. So another teacher had a, a husband who happened to be in, in television. And so I began working in television. And I got my feet wet there working with a fantastic director called David Lister, who's now in Australia. And we worked on some brilliant, brilliant series together. And he was a film guy. So he taught me, and he'd been to the London Film School, and he was awesome and creative. And he taught me everything because he was that, that kind of generous person who will pass on their knowledge to somebody who's standing there and obviously got a sponge face on and wants to take it all in. And then when I came to Canada, there was no such thing in Calgary, which is where we um, settled when we immigrated. Um, there, there were no productions. It was all, you do a few commercials and all the production was in Montreal or Toronto or Vancouver. And we just settled and it's um, very um, difficult settling in, especially we arrived in the heart of a big recession in 1982. And uh, so I took my chance and put my resume out there and um, started to enter the film industry. And um, the first thing that I worked on was Little Vampire. And it was right here in ITV studios, um, directed by René Bournier. And it was really quite a quite marvelous because they shot film style on video and uh, 13 parts and they did it all out of sequence so boy it was a baptism by fire but after that I got into making feature movies and so my job on those was as um, I did continuity and that was my my role so um, and I did that for quite a time and I got into communications because film is a single person's game. There's, wow, the hours are phenomenal. You work typically 14 hours a day for, you know, eight weeks at a time. And if you have a family, they really, they suffer. And so I decided, oh, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. And so after one really brutal shoot in Winnipeg in the winter, I thought, okay, <laughs> that's it. And so I got into communications and I went to work at an engineering company, got into communications, um, worked there for a bit, had my own business. And then, um, we, this is still while in Calgary, and then got a gig at uh, the University of Alberta in what was then the faculty of physical education and recreation, and that was a one-year contract, uh, which lasted nearly 11. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a communication strategist for that faculty, so I handled branding, I handled internal and external communications, and so on. And I really enjoyed it. And then when my job, I, I think I had been working about 11 years, and somebody came in and said to me, um, would you 
why aren't you teaching a course in communications to our undergrads? And I said, because I don't have a master's degree, but I'll go get one. And so um, I had been promising myself since I was 37 to go back to university, and I never did. And so it was like, okay, at that point, I was 60, and I thought, it's now or never. And I looked at Royal Roads, um, and they had a flexible um, intake. And so I did my master's degree through Royal Roads. But because I was part of the interdisciplinary degree program, it's like the candy store gets opened, and you're allowed to take at least 12 credits anywhere you like. And so I decided to see if I could take courses at a tier one university, the University of Alberta, to see if what I was doing was good enough and it was the, it would hit the mark and I did all right. So, (laughs) um, and I really enjoyed it. And I remember doing my thesis and hating to think that the last word on it would be written. And I felt bereft when I had finished it. And so I decided to move on and go and do PhD. What an amazing career that you had, even even prior to starting the master's. It <laughs> sounds so glamorous and, you know, the international aspects of it and all the people that you met. Um, almost sounds hard to top that, um, but you've, you've then embarked on this master's degree. But I have to ask you, Jane, because a PhD is, is such a huge commitment. Um, why a PhD? What was it that compelled you to get going on something that's such a massive commitment? Well, that's a, that's a good question. As I've just said, when I finished my master's degree, I felt bereft. It, I enjoyed the learning environment so much, and I enjoyed my having the opportunity to open my mind and think, and th- really think like I have never been able to think before. And I got some great advice from somebody who was at that point a graduate student herself, and she said, you know, the coolest thing about being a grad student is you can think whatever you want. You can think about things so, so deeply, and no one's there to tell you what to think. And it's not like you're thinking stupid things. I mean, there's so much good research that you turn to in order to inform how you might um, fashion your own argument. But I really enjoyed that experience of being able to find out. It, to me, it was breathtaking. And so that's why I signed up for a PhD, because I thought, ah, I could do another master's. And I thought, well, been there, done that. So <laughs> why not carry on? If they say you're not good enough, well, hey, there it goes. But I got accepted, and I, I've never looked back. It's just been, I've always promised myself that I wanted to learn something new every day. And so... I just find that keeping your brain alive, that was really important for me. And it was just the sheer breathtaking volume of the knowledge coming at you. If all you had to do is stand there, unzip your brain, you know, have your skull wide open and accept it all. 
And I think that's been the absolute joy of this. And so that's been the reason to do a PhD. And the other thing is that I think that no research should just sit. It should not just be done for a publication or something like that. What you do with your research needs to benefit and change and alter and make better the life of somebody else. And so that's what I want to do with this. Well, I think you've just inspired anyone who's listening to, to seriously consider doing a PhD. Um, though uh, many of us, I'll put myself in this category as well, have no idea what, what is the PhD process all about? What's involved? How do you structure your time? Do you have to hit any key milestones? Um, is there a group that goes through this or is it uh, just you and your supervisor? What does it look like? And I'm just wondering if you could share that with us and help unpack what is the process like of getting a PhD? Well, first you've got to be accepted. Now at the University of Alberta, and I would imagine this is pretty much everywhere, you have to have a supervisor in place. So that's the first thing you go looking for is, is there somebody who is um, interested in the kinds of things that you are. So I guess, first of all, I'll say right off the bat that my interest is in leisure and how that leads to um, life satisfaction, the flourished life, a satisfied life. Um, and how can leisure be a resource or how can that help refugees in their resettlement processes and in their um, resettling with ease into um, a new homeland that is vastly different. Those are the kinds of things that I'm looking at. So I needed to find a supervisor that was interested in similar kinds of things. And because I also believe that connection to nature is extremely important for human well-being, I was trying to put a few things together. And so I'm also very interested in nature-based leisure. So spending time connected to nature and how that might help to ameliorate or mitigate or take away um, stress that is related to the stress of what you've been through, so your trauma that you've been through, and also the trauma and the difficulty of resettling in a vastly different um, new homeland. So you have to find somebody who's in line with you. And sometimes that's really difficult because there's ne you're never going to find somebody who's absolutely in line with you. Um, but you have to, so you have to find somebody who's pretty darn close. So um, I'm currently on my fourth supervisory arrangement. This is extremely unusual. Um, but there have been a lot of circumstances that have led to this. So the first supervisor that I had, we got on well as a terrific guy, all the rest of it. But one day we were looking at each other and suddenly went, hang on, we're going down different paths. You're interested in that. I'm interested in this. And he said, and also because you're doing qualitative research and taking a different way than I am, I don't know how I'm going to help you. And so I looked for Now, it's the student's job to find a supervisor. If you don't have a supervisor, you don't get to carry on. So that's essential. So I went to a couple of people in the faculty that I knew, one who was brilliant at qualitative uh, research methodologies and one who was brilliant at leisure. Um, 
and asked if they would maybe combine to be my joint supervisors. Unfortunately, that arrangement didn't work out too well because um, it's very difficult to have two supervisors because um, you're trying to please two people who may be rushing in two different directions. And then, um, long story short, I now have a new supervisor. I'm in just starting my fourth year. This is totally unusual. So typically a person will have one supervisor and go through their whole program. So how your program goes is typically with, anyway, with qualitative researchers um, like me, you'll be encouraged to do coursework, typically two years of coursework, after which you write a research proposal. And depending on how you're going to do that, you can write, you can do a proposal to write three papers that will be published in academic journals, or you can go what they call the monograph route, which is write a massive dissertation that can be, you know, up to 400 pages, um, and it's focused on one um, research event or something like that. So I actually work with people. So I actually go out and talk to people. So I'm not taking documents or anything like that and, and reviewing them and trying to tease them apart and analyze them. Um, I'm actually talking to people and the people I talk to are refugees. And so um, once you've got your research proposal done, then you're you, each person has around them a supervisor and a supervisory committee. Um, so it's comprising you have about three to five people around you, and all those people bring expertise to the table. And the idea is, is that they are your angels and archangels. They are your team taking you forward to candidacy. So there's the candidacy exam. The main thing about what candidacy is meant to do is to ensure that you are ready with the knowledge you need in order to do the research that's associated with your program. And so that's a huge hurdle. Once you've got over candidacy, you do your research, you write it up, and you've got this wonderful, um, helpful team around you who are doing everything in their power to make sure that you've got you've done your dissertation the best that you possibly can do it. And that the what you've done is coherent, um, it is meaningful, and in my case, I really hope that what I do is make a difference. So that is it, and then after you've done your research, you defend. Wow, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. A couple of things that I, I wanted to ask about um, you talk about putting this team around you, which uh, in my master's program is a little bit different. There's a Your team is the fellow students that you're going through the program with. But what I'm gathering from a PhD, your team, you're kind of the nucleus or center of this team, and you're surrounded by academic advisors and people who have expertise in the subject matter that you're researching. So it's a little bit of a different kind of team concept, but you do have that team and, and are supported by that team. So that's interesting to me. And also just the process of finding a supervisor when you have a really, really unique topic, um, which I wanted to ask about how you put those things together. How did you put together the idea of nature-based leisure and refugee resettlement 
and draw some connections and and think that there might be something there? Um, One of the um, most fantastic leisure researchers in the kinesiology sport and recreation faculty is uh, Dr. Gordon Walker. And um, when I was a communication strategist for the faculty, um, his office was two doors down from mine. And we often just, you know, hung out um, just for a few minutes and we would talk about things. And I started to learn how important leisure was to life satisfaction. And um, Gordon was awesome because he would send me papers to read. He would sent me a paper by DC and Ryan on self-determination theory. So I'd be saying to him, oh, well, I've just been doing this as part of my coursework. And oh, you know what? You should read this. He didn't even realize that what he was doing, he was giving me the foundations and the foundational research that would really help me understand how different people came to leisure, how they enjoyed leisure, how they lived their lives. And one of the assignments that I had to do was on acculturation. It was where we had to choose a theory. Um, and um, this was part of an intercultural communication theory uh, class. And um, so I stumbled across a marvelous uh, person called John Berry, who developed a theory of acculturation. How do we, how do newcomers coming into a society fit into resettle, integrate into a society. And I went down to Gordon's office and I said, hey, have you heard about this Barry guy? And he said, oh, yes, he's really good. Here's this book. (laughs) And I was reading this, and it explained to me, this theory is so gorgeous and so parsimonious in, you know, the academic parlance. It's a, it's a simple, easy to understand theory of how it is that people go into um, a new society and make their way, or they don't. And what was interesting to me was it's a two-way theory. It's not just the person coming in. It's what they experience in that society. And so what they experience from the People who think of themselves, say, as um, you know, born there, Canadians, you know, um, what they experience from them determines how they will integrate. So if they don't feel as if they're warmly welcomed, they may choose what's called um, segregation. So they may choose to or separation. So they may choose to. Um, okay, so we live here, we work here, but among our ethnocultural group, because we don't feel a warm welcome from these people. And then there, there are people who just, you know, want to give up um, everything. They want to give up everything that came from their home country. And so we, those people get assimilated. And um, Canada, with its multicultural policy, um, would probably prefer integration. So integration describes people who come into a country like Canada and they hold on to their heritage culture, the tenets of their heritage culture that makes sense for them and that are really important to them. But they also participate fully in the broader society. And so 
learning about how it is that we acculturate, how do we get used to a new society, and then learning how important leisure is to our life satisfaction. For example, if you ask somebody, can you tell me about the most wonderful time of your life? People will describe a family outing, fishing on the lake, going camping, reading a book, doing something like that. They will never say, I had this terrific day at the office. <laughs> never. It, <laughs> you know what I mean? So because of that, I started to put those things together. And then because as I studied leisure, I started to think about my own experience as a, an immigrant. And we were trying to settle in in Calgary. We had a new baby. We were you know, struggling to find a job, all these things. And someone said, you know, you guys really need to go out to Banff. And so we got into our car. It was more like an old jalopy. And we drove off to Banff. And it was fantastic. And it was beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. So all the things that I had seen as uh, in South Africa about Canada, this picture postcard gorgeous country, I was standing in the middle of it. And it was like, oh, and this is mine. This is mine. I belong here. It, it was a great moment. It, was, it helped my sense of belonging in Canada to know that this landscape was now mine. And I found great joy in being in it. So when I started putting things together, I started looking at, well, if nature makes people feel calm, and there's a massive body of research on forest bathing and um, gardening, you know, for people with terminal illness and outdoor camps, um, for, you know, kids with terrible, uh, like renal failure and all that sort of thing. You start putting all that together with leisure and life satisfaction and the importance of leisure as a stress coping tool, as a place to spend time with friends, as downtime, and all of those sorts of things. The more I read about that, the more I started putting these strands together and thinking, well, this is as important for somebody newly settling in as housing, school, job, food, shelter, this is as important. So that's where I got the idea from to look into this much further. It's amazing that you put all that together in your own personal experience. And it, it really doesn't get a lot better than Banff. I mean, Banff is amazing when you think about a world-class, um, just incredibly beautiful, picturesque um, place to be. So how fortunate for you to be located so close to that. I want to get back to talking a bit more about the PhD. And I ask all of my guests to complete a questionnaire. And when I asked you when you can want to uh, plan to complete this PhD, you said that's always a tough question for PhD students. And so I get the impression that this PhD can be a never-ending process. I'm just curious about that. And I'm wondering, um, what should people who may want to take on a PhD be aware of just in terms of managing the PhD timeline? 
So you get six years to do a PhD. You must finish within the six years. Um, so they don't want people going on for a decade, going on and on and on and on and becoming a permanent student. Although hopefully you'll be have your mind open and be curious forever anyway. So the first two years you do your, your, co- your coursework and um, it's definitely not never ending. The, the part of your supervisor's job and part of your supervisory committee's job is to move you on, keep going. So they are constantly checking in with you and they want you to do things on time. And the Faculty of Graduate Studies and Research at the University of Alberta, um, they have timelines that you have to go. So you're supposed to finish candidacy at the end of your third year. You're supposed to do certain things. And if you don't, there are forms that you fill in where you have to say, okay, well, I'm not going to do that by then because of some of these complications or something like that. And so you get... You, you, you can have extensions, but they're really not anxious for you to stay there forever because you're, you're taking up room and they do want to take in um, a number of students every year. So there's, there's that. In terms of managing those timelines, I think you just have to be an extremely determined, focused person. So I am fortunate in that I've learned over the years that I've been doing this studying and to make use, good use of my time. And if I have 15 minutes, I have a book in my bag and I read. And so I'm always doing something. I've got something on the go all the time. And I've got those timelines in mind as well. Now that part seems really familiar to me because I'm, I'm of that uh, persuasion as well. <laughs> yeah. I'm always carrying around something that I'm going to be reading. Right. Um, I'm wondering how this fits in with the rest of your life. So, um, you have obviously family, people probably want to travel with you, or you might have the desire to travel and see new things. Um, how are you balancing school and the rest of your life, especially over a six-year journey? What does that look like for you? Well, um, my family has been extremely, extraordinarily supportive. Um my son is independent. He is on his own. Um, so he has his family. And my husband has been extraordinarily supportive. In fact, this journey would just absolutely not be possible, have been at all possible without him. And I think just in terms of balance, I try to balance, well, you know, I'm a leisure guy, so... <laughs> I like to take my leisure, and I know how to take that, and I take leisure very seriously. So we make sure that we take time out for kayaking, canoeing, we go camping. Um, We still like to go to beautiful environments, and we do as often as possible. Uh, I like to spend um, time out on Vancouver Island, and um, we typically do that, and often we'll both just take work, and we'll work like a son of a gun, and then we'll go for a walk. And we'll go for a long hike or do something like that. It's nice how you've structured things to make sure that you can get the work done, but also have time for for leisure, which is so important. Um, Jane, you shared with me that you're 67. 
And I'm curious to know if you faced any stigma in choosing to go back to school later in life or how supportive your friends, family, circle of peers, even your academic peers and supervisors were. Did you ever feel that there was any ageism or any awkwardness or anything like that? So I did not experience anything but support and encouragement from family and friends. And, you know, I was the one who, when I went to university, I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be the oldie in the class and the students are going to shun me. Nothing could have been further from the truth. The um, My fellow students in classes were so warmly accepting. And as far as they were concerned, I was just another person. So the problem was with me. I was the one that was having the heebie-jeebies about being the old person in the class, and they had no problem with that at all. Where I did find that there was ageism was from the professors themselves, not from all of them, but there were a couple of people who made it very clear to me that I had no place at the um, university doing PhD studies because I wasn't going to become a professor afterwards. And so there seemed to be uh, some resentment, I think, that I was there. And um, that was, that was um, actually quite crushing. How did you deal with that? I um, <laughs> moved on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that can be really hard. And it's nice, though, that your your um, cohort was so very supportive and so very accepting. That probably made a difference on the positive side. I think so. And also my motto, um, and I learned this from working on the movie in Winnipeg, where a Japanese actress um, was trying to help a young a young child actor who had to do take number 27 to get things right. And he was starting to become quite upset. And she took his arm and she said, think samurai. And I thought, I get that. I get that. (laughs) And other people on the set were like, oh, yeah, okay. But I thought, that's right, samurai you know, ethical, moral, for the good, all this sort of thing, strong, courageous, determined. You don't have to be a samurai, you just have to think. (laughs) And so that's one way you get over hurdles Mm. is it's your degree. And if somebody else has a problem with you being there, that's their problem. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so think samurai. Well, Jane, you seem like an incredibly motivated person, but I have to ask you, were there any moments where you questioned yourself and where you thought, why am I doing this? Did you have any moments of doubt when things got challenging? And, and if you did, how did you get through them? Um, well, um, hmm. so um, earlier this year, I realized that... Um, I needed to change my supervisory committee. It seemed as if one person was um, um, actively working against me. And um, I left the room after that meeting 
and I phoned my husband and I said, I think I've arrived at the end of the at the end of the line. This is it. I I don't want to carry on if this is the situation that I am in. And um, we talked about it and he was extremely supportive and there were two weeks of there were two weeks of roiling self-talk examination, looking into myself. And then I think I decided to put on my samurai armor and get rid of the deterrence to what I was going to do. And I thought, nobody's going to take this away from me. I really don't care what their agenda is. I need to... I need to I need to do this and I need to finish. But it was harrowing. Mm. It was truly harrowing. And but that is the first time that I looked at myself and go went, What the hell are you doing? And then I realized that giving in would mean that that person could go, see, she's not good enough. But everything else pointed to the fact that I was good enough. Because I managed to get a Shirk Doctoral Award, and that's a big deal. Mm. Like the University of Alberta gets about 12 of those a year across the campus. So it's a big deal. It's a huge thing. So not bad for an old girl. And I thought, no, there's everything. You've got three publications. You've done well. There's no reason for you to give up because somebody wants to place obstacles in your way, you need to figure out, you know, whether, do you really want this now? How, do, how would you feel if you had to stop? And I thought, bereft. Here would we go again with that word, bereft. Mm. And I thought, why? You've got this far. Don't do that. So that was it. It was, thank God for family. Thank God for my husband, my husband, Jeff. Um, And thank God for extraordinary angels and archangels who came out of the woodwork and supported me. And one professor in particular who absolutely saw no, she saw nothing else that she could do but to lift me up when she saw that I was so far down, she just lifted me right up and said, would you like me to supervise you? <laughs> yes. That's amazing to have that that support system in place. And I have no doubt that you will finish this degree. Um, 2021 is the, the predicted date. I am curious to know, once you've completed your PhD, What's next for you now that you hold those credentials? Because you mentioned how important it is for you to see your research activated. Absolutely. So that date is now 2022 because there have been all these huge changes mm-hmm. in so my uh, the people who are around me who are helping me move forward. So what I want to do with this is, um, first of all, um, when I was communicating, uh, being a communication strategist, I learned through the studies and so on that I looked at that the people who were most trusted 
out of anybody were professors. So people with a PhD were very trusted to tell the truth. And, you know, I mean, research is done with such an ethical, you know, hurdle that you have to go through. So you have to be terribly, terribly conscious of the ethicality of what you're doing. And that has to guide everything that you're doing. And so this is, um, this is just extremely important to me that what I do with this is I publish from my research. So I have three publications already, and I've brought them to the notice of immigrant serving agencies to say, look, this is what refugees and newcomers, meaning immigrants and refugees, um, what they say about experience having a leisure experience. And it's very, very positive. And so you can help people by doing this. And so I've found that by sharing that research with people, it's made a difference. So I want to continue to do that. Um, there's also part of doing a PhD is also if you start it, you know, it's always fantastic to finish what you started. So there's also part of that. But then what I would like to do is work with immigrants serving agencies and those who are bringing in um, refugees. And when you look at the massive migrations that are currently underway for all sorts of reasons, either people are experiencing poverty or they're living in failed states or they're living in conflict zones. And so people are on the move. Uh, Humanity has been on the move since it woke up on a beach in Africa and started moving. And that was the first migration. There have been three huge migrations since. And that was, you know, around the Neolithic eras and so on. And they keep on finding bones all over the place. So humans move for whatever reason. And so because of those, and we're so incredibly aware of them, I want to draw those lines, those strands for people who are serving immigrants to know that it doesn't stop at the job, the house, the kids in school, um, all of those sorts of things. It also has this big component of nature connectedness and leisure because leisure does not just mean being active that or something that's goal-oriented, that's recreation, but that's you know, that sitting with a book, sitting with your thoughts, writing a poem, um, camping with the kids, uh, doing something for yourself, going to yoga class, just hanging out with your own thoughts, all of that can lead to a flourished life, feeling more satisfaction with your life. And that's extremely important. So that's what I want to do. And I think having those that credential, PhD, behind my name, just brings maybe a little more street cred to what I'm suggesting to people. Fantastic. I'm wondering, what's been the most positive thing for you about this whole experience of going back to school so far? Uh, the library. Um, so every university's library, it's like tre a treasure trove of knowledge in every dimension. And so the library is fantastic for learning something and learning something new. And librarians, to me, are gods. They are amazing people because they open these treasure boxes for you. All you have to do is ask a librarian a question or tell them that you're struggling to find research on, and they go at it with such determination to help you. And so 
access to the library is one of the most amazing positives of doing advanced degrees. Your mind gets opened like you never believe. I completely agree. And I really believe that librarians are the superheroes, our modern superheroes, in helping you find the information. So yeah. that's fantastic. Well, for those contemplating a PhD, what's the one piece of advice that you wish someone had given you before you started on this journey? Just start it. Go. Do it. Don't hesitate. She who hesitates is lost. A really important message. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being here and for sharing your story. Oh, really you. enjoyed hearing about it. Thanks so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Back to School Again is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB Financial. Did you know that each month, ATB gives away two prizes of $20,000 plus a $5,000 bonus prize? It's how they say thanks to their amazing customers. Make sure you're in this month's draw and learn how to maximize your chances of winning. Visit atb.com forward slash deposit for details. And if you're looking for other great Alberta podcasts and you want short, thought-provoking audio, check out Not There Yet. It's an ongoing series of five to seven minute essays covering a wide range of subjects. Everything from science to sports, technology, philosophy, just about whatever subject comes to mind. Sometimes they look forward, other times they look back, but they are guaranteed not to take up a lot of your time. You'll find Not There Yet and other great podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Now back to our show. Listening to Jane, you can hear how much energy she has for life in general. Meeting her and hearing her incredible story was a real treat. I love how she's combined the idea of leisure and nature with that of refugee resettlement. It's such a unique topic, and it strikes me as so very Canadian. Not too long after my chat with Jane, I got a call from a researcher at the University of Alberta who is looking at ways to make universities more age-friendly. She had heard my interview last season with Donna Dawson, who is doing her master's in ethnomusicology as her retirement project. I was so glad to hear that universities are thinking about this, because I think the world is going to see more folks like Donna and Jane in the coming years, people who in their retirement decide to advance their education. It's kind of odd in a way, the way things are currently set up. We're supposed to do school and then do work and then do retirement. Yet, as we live longer and as the world shifts and morphs and technology and other factors demand that we stay current or learn new skills, we start to see that this model doesn't work. Also, education doesn't have to be so closely tied to traditional marketplace outcomes. It's about personal growth, and that's valuable and useful in continuing to make a contribution, no matter what stage of life you happen to be in. That's our show today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like the show, please give us a rating. It helps other people connect to us. You can reach me at backtoschoolagain.ca or at schoolagainpod on all the usual social channels. I'd love to hear your story. Back to School Again was recorded at the Norquest College Innovation Studio, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homeland of First Nations and Métis peoples. A huge thanks to our sponsor, Norquest College, for supporting the show and to our talented technical producer, Corey Stroder. 
Back to School Again is proud to be affiliated with the Alberta Podcast Network. Find out more at albertapodcastnetwork.com. See you next time.